Welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Everybody, and welcome to another episode of Turn the Page, the official podcast of Syosset Public Library. I'm Jen, your co-host today, and I'm here with one of my illustrious colleagues and friends. Do you want to introduce yourself? I'm illustrious, and I am Jessica. How are you? <laughs> Great, thank you. And we are both illustrious, and we are both here with an illustrious author. Would you like to introduce yourself and the book that we are here to discuss today? I am also illustrious. I love this. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Leslie Livingston, and I will be your illustrious author for this podcast. Uh, I wrote uh, my my most recent book that I've written is called Queen Among the Dead, and it is uh, published by Zando. And it is a story of uh, a feisty young princess, warrior, rebel, king, queen, wannabe, uh, named Neve. Uh, it is set in ancient magical Ireland and it is full of shapeshifters and magic and romance and <laughs> bloodshed uh, because you know those two things clearly go hand in hand and uh, it's releasing on January 17th and I could not possibly be more excited. Like seriously, <laughs> I am so excited for this book. It's crazy. We are too. Like this is um such an exciting book and it just combines so many of my own personal interests because um and, and, and mine and yeah. mine I have to say because uh yeah that was one of the things Jen um you know Jen and I sometimes we stalk um what's coming out yes <laughs> and Jen's just like Celtic mythology and druids and all of this and I was like yes let's do this <laughs> in mind when I was writing the book I, I, I clearly yeah that, that should have been your blurb on the back like you don't need a synopsis you just need that with like pictures <laughs> making I don't know fist bumps in each thing <laughs> yeah. yeah like this um you know this book combines so many of my own particular interests with like the Irish history and fantasy and speculative fiction and all of the sort of um, like mythological intrusions and the bits of real history. And I'm wondering if we could just get started um, with you telling us a little bit about like how you got into these topics, like the speculative fiction and the Celtic history and how that all kind of brought you to this book. I know that's a big question, but. <laughs> um, when I was a very small child, <laughs> actually truly when I was a very small child, um, I, I think I spent a lot of time annoying my grade school librarian uh i i i thought recess was for chumps i, I didn't want to go and run around a field what, 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 what do i want to do that for so i spent a lot of time creeping into the library and she was always like oh my god here's a book go i have to catalog these things please leave me alone small blonde child <laughs> and i spent a lot of time with uh these books that she would give me and they Somehow I, I kind of gravitated towards the ones that were based in uh, mythology and folklore and fairy tales. Um, the Dolaire's books, the uh, uh, Greek and Roman mythology and the uh, Norse mythology books were huge. Like I imprinted on those like a duckling and they kind of uh, led me into 
like a lot of classical mythology, but also uh, Celtic mythology. And I have, I, I mean, I, I have a familiar Celtic background, um, you know, Scottish and Irish and Welsh. And I just sort of, uh, I kind of dove into that stuff and fairy mythology and folklore and just, it just really grabbed me when I was uh, fairly young and I and never let go. And I guess I never let go of it. And I just, you know, before I published my first uh, trilogy, which we were talking about just before we actually started recording, uh, my Wondrous Strange trilogy, which is basically a, a fairy tale set in New York, but it's a lot of uh, sort of Celtic fairy lore and, and Irish mythology kind of jammed into a, a, a contemporary urban setting. Um, I had kind of built up all of this sort of background knowledge just from the stuff I read growing up and, uh, and you know, the, the book series that I read and, and I was very into Arthurian mythology. Um, and it all just sort of went into the pot and kept simmering. And, and over the years, as I was writing more books and I was writing, I, I wrote um, my, my Never series, which was Ancient Britain. And I wrote uh, Wonder, the Wonder Strange books, which then sort of spiraled into the, my Starling books, which are, you know, a combination of like all sorts of different mythologies. And again, in New York City, uh, a mythological melting pot, as it were. Um, that, one, that one was fun to write. Um, I, I sort of, I always had this kind of idea brewing in the back of my mind about this, this particular character that I wanted to write. And I, I wrote the, I wrote the Valiant books next, which were my my latest uh, uh, published series, which was set in ancient uh, Rome with a female gladiator. Uh, I gravitated toward women with swords also, uh, in case anybody was wondering. It's just a thing. Um, I, I come from a theatrical background and I did a lot of Shakespeare and I also did a lot of stage fighting. And I, I, I in my mind, I'm always choreographing fight scenes. Um, Strangely enough, it's, a, it's an awful lot like choreographing uh, kissing scenes. Just FYI, <laughs> like in my brain, I we're write them. Back to that eventually. We're going to yes. put a in that and we're going to be like fight scenes, kissing scenes. Let's yeah. chat. Love that. Yes, thank you. Yeah, we, okay, we will get back to that. But yes, so um, so I had this character that was kind of roaming around in the back of my head. This this girl who was who was very strong and she was from she was throne adjacent. She was royalty adjacent, but almost kind of like. Um, uh, Prince Hal in Henry V. She wasn't ever going to get the throne. She wasn't ever going to get to rule for various reasons. But and so she kind of developed this rebellious personality and wound up, you know, not acting in the way that a typical princess would. And it was it was very strange because I usually I usually write from a place to people. Uh, I, I usually come up with like a sort of a setting and a world to people with these characters that, that I, I then write their stories and with me she sort of came first and she was looking for a place for me to put her and uh it, it it's interesting that I, while I was doing some research into some some ancient myths um I came across this myth of uh the the reason why Scotland is named Scotland. And it has to do with an Egyptian princess who traveled prehistorically from Egypt to Ireland and then eventually to Scotland. And, and, and those are various, and her name is Scota, which is, and it's a very, 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 very apocryphal legend. It's like a little tiny snippet of mythology. 
but it gave me this princess who travels from a very far away place to this to Ireland, which I've always had a fascination with, and uh, and set her there, and gave her that world and gave me that world to to play with, and then I started uh, getting into like Irish werewolf mythology, which is a thing. <laughs> Believe it or not, and the uh, the idea of setting something in uh, in the environs of of Newgrange and uh, Terra, which are ancient uh, Irish ruins, which are there, there they exist. Like it, everybody's sort of familiar visually with uh, the idea of Newgrange. It's the temple. It's the it's the the ancient Irish monument with the huge green dome and the and the the, the white stone face that's got the the single entrance and uh, at winter solstice, every year the sun rises and a, a beam of sunlight shoots down this tunnel and illuminates this chamber, and nobody knows why. It I is have to say, so my name is um, in a um, drawing. You know, when you go to Newgrange, you can put your name in a drawing to actually yeah. be invited on winter solstice. Oh, that. And um, I mean, I went to Scotland like over, sorry, actually, no, I did go to Scotland over 15 years ago, but Ireland, I went to over over 15 years ago because I went to Ireland before I went to Scotland. So I have not been picked. Um oh, but you know, I mean I was I was told when I went there that that's like a lifetime yes. thing. Like you put it in once and you always have a chance to be picked. And I don't know if that is true, but there's always a chance. You check in your email, that's what I say. Yeah, that's right. It, well the thing about Newgrange is that it, it like it predates Stonehenge. It predates the building of the pyramids, and again, there was a, so the, there was this interesting sort of uh, Egyptian tie-in with that sort of thing. In that Newgrange is constructed in a very similar way to um, to the Mastaba. Um, I don't even know if I pronounce that right, Mastaba or Mastaba. I'm not sure, but the uh, the the um, the grave structures in Egypt that predate the pyramids. They were sort of they were low to the ground. They usually had a, a single entrance they were shaped similarly they were built they were constructed similarly and they and the pyramids basically wound up with you know them sort of piling smaller and smaller mastabas on top of each other in a sort of like a, a wedding cake kind of formation and then and just eventually filling in the sides like there was the step pyramids and then there were the actual pyramids but they started off with these structures and one of them which is, no longer exists uh belonged to a, a, an ancient queen and uh there are a couple of ancient Egyptian legends about these these queens who have really interesting stories to them. And one is this queen named Natokris, who sort of becomes uh, my queen niece, who becomes the Scathic. It'll all make sense when you read the book, I promise. Uh, but she is sort of she's Neve's ancestress, and she uh, she is sort of the the backstory to everything that kind of happens to Neve, and she is uh, and Neve is sort of her legacy. Um, and she is kind of something that need, needs to escape uh, to become the person that she's going to become. But she is she's got this fascinating backstory of like of, of vengeance and uh, and and fierceness. And she's this warrior queen who basically her, her she locked all of her enemies in a giant banquet hall after inviting them over. Uh, all unawares and then you know shut all the doors and and open up a big one that let the river nile in and drown them all and then she you know hit the road and i i kind of 
in my mind, I had this interesting moment where I conflated her backstory with the story of the 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 uh, Egyptian princess who traveled to Ireland, and then a, a whole bunch of legends of the Tuatha Day uh, sort of folded themselves into that, and this entire story started to build with Neve at the center. And the really amazing thing about Ireland at that time and being that ancient and that uh, that removed from history is that nobody nobody really knows what uh, what Tamir what Terra looked like when it was built. There are like foundations that are left in the ground and these interesting you know sort of spiral buildings and everything else. And I sort of wanted to make like build a society of these kind of almost godlike beings who had come from somewhere else, which is all in, in ancient Irish mythology. There's like there's these 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 series of of, of tribes that come to Ireland from somewhere else and they have these almost godlike powers and I wanted to set it in kind of almost an Atlantean setting so it's like there's this this you know this magical kingdom that is built partially with magic and it no longer exists like we don't we don't know what Tara looked like we don't know exactly what Newgrange was for we don't know what all these 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 little magical barrows were were constructed for what their purpose was what they you know what this society looked like and uh, it wound up becoming this interesting clash between essentially two cultures in Ireland, the one that was already there, and then Neve's people who came and just decided to you know, take over and rule. And she has a lot of trouble dealing with that uh, sort of from a, 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 an ethical standpoint. Um, and also she just, she wants to set things right in a lot of ways uh, within herself and also within her, her kingdom. And, you know, and then she runs into handsome rogues from the other side of the tracks <laughs> and, and uh, you know, a pack of shape-shifting warrior wolf, wolf, wolf women <laughs> who become something of an inspiration to her. And, and, uh, and then off we go. So. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, you know, this, this question touches on everything that you've just been talking about and, you know, because everything that you've just been saying, um, it is so clear that you are really well grounded in um, not only the history, but in like where the gaps in the history are, you know, and how mythology relates to both the history and the gaps, you know. And I am wondering, like, just when you were approaching all this and like determining the setting for your story and like how your characters were going to operate in this world, like what was your approach to like how you fill the gaps, you know, like how do you create your story where the history doesn't exist, if that makes sense? That's amazing that you should ask that because I, I often say that the gaps are my favorite parts uh, because they are the places where you can take the, where you build a house and then you get to furnish it and you get to, uh, you get to make things happen inside the structure. And yeah, that's the thing about that, about Irish mythology, Celtic mythology in general, but uh, Irish mythology and also like fairy mythology and that sort of thing. There are so many different versions that you can you can you can pull one thread out of uh, out of a particular myth, and you can follow that thread even though it's wound up around a whole bunch of other threads and a whole bunch of different versions of those stories. Like there are there are so many different stories about so many different characters in Irish mythology and you can pluck up one thread here and it doesn't tie into the same story with the same character over here unless you sort of make it and you can you can kind of 
it's like picking apart a tapestry and kind of reweaving it, but we using the same threads and the same theme. And you can you can live in those gaps. Um, you know, like the for example, oh, I don't know. I, it's 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 just taking the you know the general idea of the this the series of invasions in Ireland. The there was the the Fomori and the Tuhade and uh, and the idea of the the Fail, the, the Stone of Destiny, and bringing all these things over. And then like you know, then I would bring in the, the the little bit of the 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 Egyptian mythology idea of the, this completely bonkers idea of this Egyptian princess coming over and, and ruling in 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 Ireland in you know prehistorically. And so I got to weave that little bit of a completely unrelated myth in there. And then I got to play around with um, with some of the the names and the sounds of the words and Skota and Skathic. And I got to bring in this the, her, her Scythian or Scythian counterparts, um, her warrior uh, uh, charioteers and, and, and horsemen. And, and, and yes, I'm, I, I do conflate some things and I do, you know, fudge some timelines a little bit to uh, not Fudge. Uh, it's, I mean, you know, there's magic. And like I say, it is sort of an almost an Atlantean kind of thing in that, you know, there is this, um, this, this broad canvas with these sort of, like the walls are built and the roof struts are there and I need to finish it and furnish it according to the story. And the great thing about it is, is that generally once you start uh, peopling these stories with, with your characters, they will find the places that they will fill in the story. And it's it's kind of, it winds up being kind of fascinating. Like there were, and, and also what I was saying about setting is that there are always uh, places that I hang bits of story on. And like, I mean, New Grange was a huge one. And that just sort of the why and the wherefore of, of, of that thing, which exists and which, you know, has its, its own stories, many of them. Um, but then there were other stories that I wound up sort of finding in the landscape around there. Like I needed, I needed this sort of rough and tumble town full of these, you know, these um, these furball peasants or like you know, like the people who already lived there when when you know when the Fomori came, these shapeshifters came in and took over, which is you know one of the legends. And then the Tuatha came in and they took over and so I needed this rough and tumble town and I needed something that would sound plausible. And there is a place very close to where I needed on the confluence of, of rivers called modernly called Blackwater. And I was like, well, that works because it's, that says everything I needed to say about that place. And that gave rise to, uh, you know, some of the details of the, the magic that's already living in the, in the land and in the rivers and how there's, you know, there's uh, the, the, the magic that's already inherent there is kind of corrupting somewhat. And there is this danger in the natural magic in the world there. And it's not necessarily or always a benevolent thing. And I was like, and I bet, you know, that's from largely from my, for me, you know, like delving into all the maps around the Blackwater. And going, that's exactly where I needed. It's this distance from there, so I can get there in this amount of time, and I can get there. And then for, um, like for me's mother's uh, uh, retreat, where she is, she's gone off to, and Nita goes to find her. Again, I was looking for some place really kind of cool and interesting, and I found this this tiny little lake 
in at, right on the coast on the northern coast, right in, on, the, on this cliff's head. That's you can zoom in on a map and actually see where Neve goes, and you can like find little pictures of it. And there's a little tiny lake with a little tiny stone prehistoric broch in the middle of it. Like this little this little crannog was built on this island, and it's man-made, and it's there, and like the remains are there. And so I was like, okay, now I get to actually. I get to thread some of the story up there. And then and, and in doing that, I got to you know, build out the landscape from that. So a lot of it is, is you know, is, is taking all of these different sort of disparate bits and, and uh, doing a lot of, a lot of sort of mental crochet, I guess. And hoping you don't drop too many threads <laughs> along oh, the way. Yeah, no, I'm just, um, I'm just thinking, you know, one thing that's like really amazing about just this whole process that you talk about, you know, it's so, it's so interesting when you read fantasy, there's so many different ways people go about it. And, you know, it's like, what I love is that like, you know, this is like historical fantasy and like you really committed to there being landmarks. Um, you know, and like making it feel very tangible. And I think that that is like really commendable. Did you like, did, did, was there ever a point where like something hit a snag because one thing and the other didn't really fit where you just like, okay, I want to do this or I want to go here, but there, you know, there's not like, it's not the the flow didn't really work. Strangely enough. No, it was actually kind of the opposite. I know, I know. And this is a, this is a weird thing that uh, that frequently happens when I'm writing and I don't, uh, sometimes I, I can't overthink it because otherwise I'm like, oh God, what if it never happens again? Because it was like, honest to God, when, when I was writing the Wondrous Strange books, um, the same sort of thing happened. My, my editor, uh, Laura Arnold at the time was, uh, I, I kept sending her, you know, the story as it was progressing and she you know she was an editor in New York City and and I so much of that story hinged on landmarks in New York in like things monuments in Central Park um the Croton Reservoir aqueduct that used to exist where the library is now but which is no longer there but used to look like an, an ancient and here we go again and this is a weird thread that goes through a lot of my stories is an ancient Egyptian temple like that's how the, the reservoir was built to look like this this massive temple at Karnak and like you know Edgar Allan Poe would like wander around the the top of it in, on moonlit nights and stare into the waters and like think Edgar Allan Poe thoughts how very like, <laughs> <laughs> right? I'm like that is the most Edgar Allan Poe thing is it not <laughs> I know it's astonishing and but then that, that the, ori was... the original emo or something right <laughs> oh absolutely like god of emos um but the hilarious thing is that was demolished but there is a staircase at the corner of uh, in inside the library now that is the the outer walls of what used to be the Crone Aqueduct are still there and there's like these rough stone walls with this frosted glass staircase that go down into the depths towards like a lecture theater, something like that. But like it goes, it, it, if you stare down, it's like this, this glass frosted staircase and this rough hewn thing. And when I was writing my Starling books, I was like, I need an entrance into the underworld. Wait a minute. <laughs> and, and I had, you know, because of like the Cleopatra's Needle in Central Park and all these things, one of the characters I had wandering around that story was Anubis, the ancient Egyptian god of the dead who owned a jazz club up on like, you know, the, the, the Upper East Side. 
Um, so he was my entrance to that. But I, so there was that, and there was like the Hellgate Bridge and all of these things in North Brother Island. I kept finding all these weird landmarks around New York and folding them into the story. And they all, they all just like, just like, I couldn't have written the story without them. They just, it was like there. And I'm like, oh, well, of course, that's, that's, that's a plot point. That's a major plot point that already exists. And it got to the point where uh, Laura was like, what are you making North Brother Island? are you making this up? And I said, no, Lori, it's actually there. And she's like, she, she started calling me New York city supernatural biographer, which was, I thought was hilarious because I kept coming up with all these weird little like cryptic places that I could attach, you know, a bit of fairy lore to. And, and when I wrote the, the never books, the same sort of thing happened in that I was, you know, I was writing about uh, Boudicca and the, and, and the, the, the ancient um, Ikeni rebellion against the, the, the Romans and I needed very, if you've ever seen the Battersea Shield, which again, is one of those things that lives in people's memories. It's, it's the bronze shield that was found in the Thames River. It's got the, the big bronze uh, uh, circle hump in the middle and then two smaller humps on either side. And it's decorated with swirling patterns. And in my mind, I wanted uh, to, because Boudicca's gravesite has never technically been found. And I was like, I, I, I want to put her in something. I, I wanted that to be a grave marker. Like I'd like a diorama. I want to use the shield as like a like a here here here. Find this and you will find her. And I was like, I'm gonna have to make this up because that doesn't that that particular gray barrel formation does not exist anywhere in Britain in the way that I want it to. I'm quite sure. And then I found it. And there is in Ikini territory, right exactly where I needed it on a map, there is the remains of a, of a, a field, a, a barrow field. There were like, there were several different grave barrows there. The only ones that are extant today. And, and the middle one is the highest extant grave mound in Britain. And there are two on either side of it in exactly the dimensions and formation that I, you could pick up the Battersea shield and drop it on top of them. And it would be like, oh, okay. That's and 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 I like I I when I found them on, on on a map and I like I zoomed in and I was like I goosebumps and it was it was crazy I like I was I was I was prepared to actually just make it up you know like that's what I do I'm I'm an author I write fiction I was gonna make it up I didn't have to and that was it, it was just it was bizarre and hilarious and and uh, and that sort of what happened with uh, with this book too. Like I said, I had this character before I had the place, which is a, which is a little different for me. And um, my my partner, my uh, my guy John was like, one day he goes, well, hey, what about, what do you know about Newgrange? I was like, uh, oh, fair amount. <laughs> He's like, well, you know, you started looking for a setting and it seems kind of cool. And I was like, nah. I was busy. I was doing something else. I don't know. I was like playing with a cat. <laughs> and, then, and then like we, and, and my agent and I, and, and um, the woman who's my editor now, T uh, Tiffany Miao, who is uh, brilliant. We were, we were sort of workshopping this idea of this story with this, this character. We hadn't quite set the, the parameters of the story. I think we knew it was like an ancient kingdom and, and we just didn't know which one. And, uh, and then a week after John had said this to me, I was getting ready to go to LA for some meetings and uh, I had to work wake up early the next morning. And so I was like, you know, trying to get some sleep, being a good girl, went to bed early. And I was like, hey, drift, just drifting off. And I was like, Newgrange. Oh, I'm not going to get any sleep tonight. 
damn. <laughs> the next morning, I was just a mess. So I was like, and Todd's like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, it's your fault. <laughs> he's like, what did I do? I'm like, new grade. And he's like, you are so odd. And I'm like, I call up my agent. I'm like, oh, yeah, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta have a conference call with Tiff because I know, I know where it is. I know what we're doing now. And, and the story just, just drifted down onto this onto this setting like the setting was just waiting me to you know like to smarten the hell up and figure out that that's where it was and 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 frequently that that happens where John will just be like hey what about and I'm like oh yeah of course and so that's that's very helpful and you know <laughs> because we co-write things together and every now and then it's just like oh right yeah of course uh wow that. that's so interesting to me because like it really um drives home for me like how specific the setting feels like in this book but then also how these very like timeless themes about like the movement of people and colonialism and how cultures move and change and power and all those things like those all feel kind of timeless you know and so the balance between like historical specificity and these sort of like you know universal issues is like is is very very interesting to me and so i'm wondering about like how like i saw connections between like the use of magic and how that relates to like empire and power and indigenous cultures and how various people like get access to resources so i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about like what your approach was to all that and how like themes of empire feed into like the fantasy setting if that makes sense oh absolutely yeah I, and that's that's something that's always kind of fascinated me um especially with like writing books and setting them in sort of the, the time periods that i do um it was just you you know you weren't living unless you were being conquered uh, or or conquering or something like that um I, it's it's sort of i guess it's a little bit thematic for my last uh, couple of sort of more um, historically based novels like the the uh, the valiant novels are, are there's no magic in them really uh, whatsoever um, there is you know people's in their belief systems but there's no there's no schwa there's no you know sparkling <laughs> for the first time in my life when I wrote that trilogy I was I could not get my lead character into and or out of trouble by use of magic so that was interesting for me um, she, uh, Fallon, she's just, she is a Celtic princess who is uh, abducted, sold into slavery, shipped off to Rome and bought by a, uh, a Ludus, uh, a gladiator school who trains female gladiators. And so that was, a, that was kind of a big thing in that story as well, because she has grown up um, in the shadow of her sister, who was a great warrior, who uh, was lost during the invasion, uh, during Julius Caesar's invasion of Britain. And when she gets to Rome uh, and gets to this uh, school for gladiatrixes, she discovers it is owned and operated by none other than Julius Caesar, which, you know, it, uh, it is awkward, mostly for Julius Caesar, <laughs> because she's like, I have just been bought by my my mortal enemy who she has grown up wanting to stick a knife into for her entire life and then you know she um she has to deal with a, a lot with the feelings that, that she actually winds up um developing a certain amount of respect for him 
and for what he does, not necessarily how he does it. Uh, and and she is sort of caught between two worlds in that respect in, in that she has to deal with uh, how she becomes a, a popular figure in Rome and becomes this like this superstar and her life changes dramatically and for the better and she becomes all these things that she always wanted to be but at the same time she's dealing with the fact that uh she's essentially doing it at the behest of a person who you know who enslaved a lot of her people and enslaved a lot of her uh her you know the, the like the tribe the, the gaulish tribes and and she winds up uh befriending person Gatorix and she has to deal with a lot of those feelings of of you know how do i how do i deal with the fact that I have friends on both sides of this argument and I have power on both sides of this argument. And interestingly enough, and, and this is sort of, you know, similarly when I wrote the, the Never books, um, those are my sort of, they're, they're, they're like a fun romp of time travel with a modern girl who winds up back in, in uh, Britain during the Roman invasion and she befriends one of Boudicca's daughters and, and she, sees the uh, the Roman invasion from uh, the perspective of uh, of Boudicca and Boudicca's daughters, even though Boudicca goes completely off the rails and starts, you know, even massacring her own people who befriend the Romans. And she's like, no, you're, you're traitors and you almost die. And that, I mean, there is a, there's a, like a six inch layer of ash underneath the city of London that was all of left, that was left of Londinium when Boudicca was done with it, historically. Like there's actually a Boudiccan level <laughs> and it's, she, you know, she she rebelled against an invading force, but at the same time, in doing so, she kind of decimated her own culture at the same time. And so, and then the, in book two, um, Claire's best friend, Allie, goes back in time and she winds up on the other side of the equation. She winds up falling in love with a Roman soldier back then who is is doing things for all the right reasons, but at the same time has serious moral uh, dilemma about, you know, what's going on with this this army that is invading this 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 indigenous people. And so there's there's a lot of, I guess it's always been something I've, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of interested in, in those sort of in, in those, uh, those conversations. And with with, you know, and as I say, those are my slightly more realistic, even though there's time travel and there's those, those are my slightly more realistic um, sort of sticking my toe into, into, into that uh, conversation. But with, um, with Queen Among the Dead, Neve is, is coming at it from the point of view of, again, being a very, like she is, she's benefited from being one of the members of the ruling class. Uh, and they are, you know, they're an elite uh, privileged, magical, super awesome, sparkly people who who live in palaces in this gorgeous land full of magic, and they are hoarding the magic and not uh, not playing nice with the in indigenous peoples or forces in that land. Like they don't they 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 treat the uh, the furbolg terribly um her ancestress came in and basically just uh annihilated the fomori who were also a conquering race though like the furbolg they they've been there to be conquered by the fomori who are the, these shape-shifting monstrous beautiful but monstrous people 
who then the Tuahade came in and got rid of them. So they're like, hey, and oh no, not so great. Okay, so the Furball group, basically they're just trying to like freaking live. And one of the characters actually sort of personifies that um, in that she is, uh, she's an orphan from when her mother who practiced very small magic, she's at Furbolg and her mother practiced very small magics when she was a child. And the Tuahade are trying to uh, hoard all the magic and, and basically get rid of all the people who are practitioners. And so she was left bereft at a very young age because her mother was taken from her and for doing tiny things like, like healing spells. You know, like kitchen witch stuff, but um, and so that that becomes a thing for that character, which becomes a motivating issue. And Neve starts to see uh, just exactly what is wrong with her culture and with the rot in the roots of this 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 glorious tree that has grown up is uh, is is rotten to the core down down below. And she starts to really see that it becomes her duty to set things right for not just for her own people, but very much for uh, the everybody else who lives in Ireland, who has um, you know, suffered under the heel of, of, of her father and, and her ancestors. Did that answer that question? Yeah, uh, so much. <laughs> you know, I, I was, well, basically I was gonna say, I would just like to get a drink with you uh, or a, a cider and just like be like, Let's talk mythology. <laughs> because Let's do it. <laughs> but I want to go back before we close out. I want to go back to your whole thing before that you were talking about fighting scenes and kissing scenes. <laughs> because that is one of like that is an analogy that I need to understand. So mm -hmm. please, um, how are how is a raven like a writing desk? How is a kissing <laughs> scene like a, a, a stabbing? Um, yeah. I, well, like I say, I come, I come from this theatrical background where I spent a lot of time uh, either watching fights be choreographed or participating in, in, in fight scenes. Um, I, love, I love the act of choreographing uh, battle scenes and fight scenes and, and like rapier and dagger and, and longsword and broadsword and watching, watching how that works out on stage and watching the, the choreographer move the actors around and, and have them engage in a fight, which to me and to a good to a good fight choreographer is never, ever, ever just about the fight. Um, it's always about moving the plot forward and uh, developing character moments, uh, which you can do through a fight which you have to do through a fight as far as I'm concerned. It's like, it's the way people engage in combat and the way people fight and the way you choreograph something, it's like, okay, I need a big battle to take place here. But at the same time, the way it takes place, it should never just be a fight for a fight's sake, as far as I'm concerned. Um, there, there should always be, you should always come away from um, a martial engagement with some sort of insight into the people fighting it. And so that's, also, it's it's kind of fun to work out just you know, like just how the weapons move and 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 in your head you kind of like when I you guys can't this is just audio so you can't see you guys can see me doing this but I am like I'm swooping my hands through the air right now and like you know crossing my fingers and 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 because when I choreograph fight scenes I will sit in front of you know, I will hover over my computer keyboard and I will be like okay so he okay so this comes in and I, okay so but that's got to get underneath her. 
arm, but okay, so she's fighting a guy who's used to fighting on horseback. So he's going to come at her from over the top of his head. So she can kind of swoop underneath that because she kind of knows where he's coming from. And okay, so he's got an axe and she can, you know, okay, she can, but it, okay, the momentum takes it this, and yeah, so it's, it's, it's all, it, it looks like I'm doing some sort of like weird interpretive dance and it, I'm sure it's quite ridiculous at the time, but I, I, I love writing fight scenes that are, that are, as I say, character illuminated. And the same thing with kissing scenes and with romance scenes is that there's always, it's always a tug of war. You know, and you want to keep the rope between the two characters tight enough that it doesn't slack in the middle and hit the ground. But you don't want to keep it too tight that, you know, one of them gets pulled over and you, you lose your dynamic. It's And so it's like the way you write a, a, a kissing scene is very much like, you know, just, okay, are they, are they coming face to face? Are they, you know, how close do they get at any one point? How does he swoop in like this and why? Why is he going why is he going for the why is he going for the side of her neck? Why? What happens when he, you know, when his lips wind up here? <laughs> like where and I mean it, a lot of it is sort of physical you know, physically moving people through space with your words, but at the same time, it's also I love you know writing little bits of characters like does he go straight for the lips or is he like or is he go, is he an earlobe man? Like and why? And you know, does he need to whisper something in there? Or, um, and, and is and and how do you describe the tension between two characters when they are in that situation? And is there tension? And why? And what what are they trying to say to each other mm. through their absence? So it's always a it's always a matter of writing character in action scenes, and that's that's very fun to me. That's um, like an incredibly incredibly astute insight, I think. You know, because of like. Especially like with how I think fighting and kissing scenes are perceived, like they're often perceived as like filler or just like the titillating stuff, you know, that like people are waiting to get for for the story. Yeah, sure. But they actually like, in, you know, entail all this like really intense choreography and like power exchanges, you know, like, and so they're exactly. like, exactly really, like so is. much more in interesting than a hundred percent. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. And frequently they're there. I mean, sometimes they are or should be almost indistinguishable. Mm. Like there are scenes where where Neve and Roman, no, Roman Empire, Ronan, my guy, <laughs> uh, where where Neve and Ronan come face to face in such a way that uh, you don't know if she's going to kiss him or punch him. And you shouldn't end up until it happens. And sometimes, I think of, um, I think of army of darkness. First, you want to kiss me. Now you want to kiss me. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly it. And there's, right. you know, there's, yeah, there's those scenes where like, he, and he's like, yeah, okay. So I, I, I think he actually says to her at one point, um, like she's, I think she's kind of got her lips fastened on his throat and he's, and he's like, um, and she's like, what's wrong? And he's like, I'm used to having your blade at my throat, not your lips. What's going on? And he has to, and he has to figure out for what, for her actions. Like, okay, so the, a, the dynamic has shifted somewhat here and I need to know why, but I'm somewhat distracted. So yeah, it, it's it, also, they're just so much fun to write. So uh, before we close out, will there be more? Are we going to return? Is this... A possible, fingers crossed, maybe. <laughs> awesome. 
Nice. I would, uh, I would love to uh, continue on with the story. I really would. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, I have, I have things in my head. We'll see. It's, you know, it's always, it's always a we'll see. Mm. But, um, boy, how do I have things I would like to make my characters do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yes. Oh my gosh. But, this is but again, any author always does. I mean, I still, I, you know, I still have things I want to make my characters from Wonder Strange do. And uh, yeah. So there you go. Would you ever go back to that series ever? I have actually a really fun idea um, that's almost a little prequely for that one that I would. Fair enough. All right. Mm -hmm. We don't have to talk more about that, but no, I like I that. Would, but yeah. I, I yeah. Mean, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I wonder if it's what I'm thinking of. I'm not going to say anything. Um, <laughs> Jen, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss this one over that, over that cider. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds good. All right. Um, oh this was amazing. Jen, do you have any other questions? I don't. This has been fabulous. And I'm so glad to hear that you are, you know, like willing to return to this world and to previous worlds you visited because like they're all so rich and so interesting. And we hope that like, you'll come back to the show and talk uh, about us to, you know, these other entries into this world because like, they're very exciting. I would love to do that. I I always sort of look at the, the, the things I write as almost all existing in the same sandbox, just mm -hmm. in very far flung corners of it. Mm -hmm. Like I am, I am not beyond, you know, thinking that, that Fallon and me exist in the same actual universe just in different time periods and different, you know, places and, and also, you know, existing in the same universe as, uh, as, as Kelly in, in New York city and Claire in, in wherever time period Claire is existing and at any one particular point. Yeah. I mean, I always like, I, it's a, it's a big sandbox and uh, I, I am willing to go at it with a backhoe <laughs> or, or a tiny, tiny little shovel. It's, you know, <laughs> It's all archaeology. I'm just I'm just scraping away the layers and finding the stories. That's kind of how I think about it. Yes. It's not. It's way more, you know, just basically staring at a pile of sand and going, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. One grain at a time, you know. Like, One grain at a time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming to the show. Uh this has for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. Totally. Come back. Yes, please come back. Like this has been such a delight. Um, yeah. So readers, 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 listeners right now, you'll be reading in the future. Please, please pick up Queen Among the Dead. It is so, so great. And you will have such a good time with it. This has been Jen and Jess in conversation with Lev Leslie Livingston. And it is time to close this chapter. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye. Thanks, you Bye. Have a good one. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.